Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. At a time when journalism is under siege, when the attacks sometimes result in too much caution, when the goal of politicians is to attack journalists like they're working the refs, it's worth thinking about times when we've seen full-throated, muscular, and sometimes participatory journalism. The kind practiced by the likes of Jimmy Breslin or H.L. Mencken, George Plimpton, Truman Capote, or Hunter S. Thompson. Thompson had the opportunity to be present for many world-changing moments. How he saw them, how he reported them out, may have shaped a generation of readers and may be in the very DNA of how we consume news today. We're going to talk about Hunter Thompson with my guest, Tim Denevi. Tim is the author of the previous book, Hyper, A Personal History of ADHD. His essays on politics, sports, and religion have appeared in numerous publications, including the Paris Review, New York Magazine, and Salon. And it is my pleasure to welcome Tim Denevi here to talk about his new work, Freak Kingdom, Hunter S. Thompson's manic 10-year crusade against American fascism. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. There does seem to be something in looking back at Thompson's work, particularly during this period that, that you talk about in the book, this 10-year period, that, that, is, that is lasting, that, that he contributed something to journalism that was more than just the sum total of his writing during this period. Talk about that. He had, even while he was a practicing journalist and um, a more standard journalist in the early 1960s, an essayist's point of view on what was um, the best aspect of America in terms of our governance and what was its most susceptible and corrupt aspect. And with that point of view, he really was able to see in the early 1960s and then up through the end of the 60s and the early 1970s, the um, promises and dangers that the counterculture movement and the um, political changes brought on by the Vietnam War um, brought to America. And it's, it's very rare to find somebody who was at so many um, country-changing events as he was throughout that decade. Where did he develop this attitude? Where did this come from with him? Well, right before he um, moved to California, he had been living in South America, and he had been writing for the National Observer, which was a weekly standard paper um, owned by Dow Jones, and he would send back um, different articles to them <clears throat> as he kind of took the slow boat down the uh, continent about um, topics like uh, democracy dies in Peru, but there's no one there to see it or fight for it. So he had been watching the fragility of democracy in other um, countries for you know, as a young man and writing about it before he came back to the United States. And he decided he wanted to be the Western correspondent for the National Observer. And he stopped for a few months to live in Woody Creek, Colorado. This was in 1963. And that's when the death of John F. Kennedy um, occurred, the assassination, which hit him particularly hard because he had just seen undemocratic movements, assassinations, coups happening in South America. And to see Kennedy killed by the most demonized aspect of the right, uh, a purported communist, really opened the door in Thompson's eyes for the chance that somebody like Barry Goldwater with his extreme views um, could take over our country and that our democracy was um, becoming increasingly fragile. So he ended up after that driving out in a really muddy um, February, um, on a really muddy February uh, uh, weekend to Glen Ellen, um, in Glen Ellen, California, where he had planned to live in a um, house that he had thought he had rented, but he ended up, because it was already rented, 
living on the hillside uh, right near Jack Lennon State Park. Um, and he wanted to live there because he knew that what was going to be coming in America would most likely be centered in, um, in San Francisco. And he, he saw it through the free speech movement and what was going on um, at Berkeley. Eventually that morphed into the anti-war movement and the counterculture movement that the Mary Prakesters and also the um, Hells Angels would come to represent in different ways. Right. How did he see the, the contrast between the counterculture movement at the time and traditional politics as it was playing out? That's an excellent question. He was on the floor of the 1964 Republican Convention, and that was traditional politics. That was um, Nelson Rockefeller um, among the um, Republicans fighting for a more moderate cause at the Cow Palace. That was Barry Goldwater saying, extremism and defense of liberty is no vice. And all of the delegates around Thompson began to thrash <clears throat> wildly and bang their chairs and, um, you know, in a, in a kind of fascistic and um, groupthink way, support this, um, this statement. So he, he saw that traditional politics was having its own fight between extremism and the mainstream. And then when he looked at the counterculture, he saw that you had people questioning the system like Ken Kesey and, and questioning why it exists in the first place um, and looking for ways around it or outside it to live somewhere like La Honda <clears throat> to um, find a kind of new consciousness to deal with it. And they contrasted with the Hell's Angels, who also felt left outside of the current culture, who also felt out of the ballgame, as Thompson wrote about them, but had banded together um, to, to use violence as a way to strike back at the system and to attack the people within it indiscriminately. And the way he writes about the Hells Angels is very beautiful, where um, during the uh, march in Oakland um, to protest the Vietnam War, the uh, Vietnam Day Committee March, um, the Hells Angels really thought that the, um, I'm sorry, the Mary Frakes really thought the Hells Angels would be part of their movement and would be part of their anti-war counterculture movement. And instead, the Hells Angels broke through the police line and began to beat the protesters mercilessly at the border of Oakland and Berkeley. And Thompson was there to witness it all. So he understood the way that both traditional politics divided within itself and the counterculture divided within itself um, in, in sort of harrowing ways that got um, whitewashed by the media and did not necessarily have, um, were not necessarily analyzed in the way that he believed the media should be doing at that time. It's interesting to see or to try and figure out the degree to which he was co-opted, perhaps, by the Hells Angels. I mean, it really was being embedded with them and them allowing him to do that was his first big break. Did it make him more sympathetic to their cause? You know, that's an interesting question. I, I think there were certain individuals with the Hells Angels that he was sympathetic to. He could understand why somebody like the Hells Angel Tiny, who he refers to, perhaps had dropped out of society. But to be able to write about them in the way that he did, I, I think he needed to humanize certain um, members of the Hells Angels, such as Sonny Barger, who was very intelligent, very shrewd, um, you know, very ruthless, before he could then, as a whole, indict the Hells Angels for um, having basically, as he says, that their outlook was, was basically fascistic. They were with, more with the John Birch Society than they were with the countercultural um, movement that we identify with Kesey and we identify with the um, anti-war demonstrators. And so it, I find it fascinating because to be able to really I think bring the hammer down on the Hells Angels and on our society on what happens when people think they've been promised jobs that they uh, deserve. People think that they're going to have as much success as their um, parents before them. People think that because they're a white male in the post-war world that they'll have this um, certain path forward. And they don't get it how they respond. And the Hells Angels responded by banding together 
and by um, lashing back out. And so really I love Hells Angels because he's able to make them humans and also show what's going on in our society and within their motivations to um, bring about the violence that they were identified with. It was also a kind of precursor, a kind of way in, it seems like, for Thompson in the way he combined his view of kind of popular culture, I mean, as exemplified by stuff he wrote about Vegas or the Kentucky Derby, the way he saw pop culture and the way he conflated that with politics. I think that's a really good point, too. I mean, there was one great line in Fear and Living on the Contain Trail in 72 when he says, like, Jesus, you have to be a rock star now to be able to run for president. Um, I, I think he understood that the way that the Hells Angels became such a sensation in the United States was to manipulate and use the publicity machine of the United States the way that a rock band might or the way that a um, venue like the Kentucky Derby might. And he was so great at going somewhere like the Kentucky Derby and seeing it through a political lens. Um, and the same, and the same as, the, as the reverse, going somewhere <clears throat> like the um, campaign trail and talking about the Rolling Stones, you're talking about um, Grace Slick while there. And I, I think he, that's, a, that's an excellent point. He really had his finger on the way America conflates popular culture and politics. And it gives us a startling insight to the way that a reality TV um, mogul has conflated both to, to, right. to take over our popular culture slash political landscape today. Of course, it begs the question as to whether or not he simply chronicled that or whether he helped contribute to it. I mean, he knew everybody. Like, he was there the first night that Grace, uh, I'm sorry, the first night that Jefferson Airplane performed um, on the hate. You know, he was there um, to to witness these um, the Super Bowl that was as it was forming as a as a major um, cultural event. He, he, I, I think that Rolling Stone allowed him the opportunity to articulate that conflation in a way that other writers were not doing. And you're right. The, the, Whatever the whatever the lineage is of where we ended up now, whatever the whatever the, the um, backstory is to how we got to where we are right now, I think Hunter Thompson is definitely a part of that, especially as how it comes to media and um, politics and power. He also understood something. Going back to Goldwater, he he had a, a sense of where conservative politics was going. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think he understood <clears throat> that within the conservative. Um, battle that was going on as the Republicans were trying to decide what sort of party they wanted to be in the 1960s and the 1970s, that a sort of groupthink, more violent, less democratic approach could be especially effective. And feeling that violence on the floor of the Goldwater campaign, um, I'm sorry, on the floor of the convention when Goldwater spoke, was something he would never forget for the rest of his life. He wrote about it at the time in his letters, and he wrote about it beautifully um, on the campaign trail in 1972 when he was at the Miami convention watching Nixon be reelected and everybody was sort of violently shouting four more years for Nixon. And they were all screaming at the media who was covering it. Um, and I, you know, I think he understood that what power wants, and this is developed, I think as a strain on the right wing, especially is to not be held accountable by um, anybody with an outside, with an outside view or with the possibility to expose um, the dealings that are going on. Within. And that's why he fought so um, tirelessly for the idea of a free press and for free access, or free access. And he knew that Nixon, from the start, was someone who would do whatever he could to limit that press's access because it would only end up bad for someone as corrupt or someone as power hungry as Nixon. He really 
understood the really dark side of Nixon. People talked about it, but Thompson seemed to have an instinct for Nixon's darkest side. You know, I think it goes back to the Checker speech in the 1950s where Nixon is so desperately pretending that um, he's done nothing wrong and he's a victim. And, you know, the Checker speech is over this campaign finance scandal when he was running as vice president for Eisenhower, and he gives this national televised um, interview, and he goes, you know, what we got was a dog. And if you want to take that dog away from my daughter, then fine. And it was clear to all of America that he was being overblown, that Nixon was pretending to be this victim, that Nixon was lying. And so for the rest of Nixon's career, especially from the 60s on, Thompson had a, a very keen insight into the fact that Nixon could lie to the entire American public. The American public could know Nixon was lying. But instead of seeing that as a detriment, they often saw it as a form of ambition and the way a used car salesman should be rewarded for being able to sell a very terrible car to somebody that's overpaying. That's, that's a skill as opposed to just selling Mercedes to somebody that they're paying the normal price for. And, you know, Thompson knew that used car salesman aspect of American culture was in many circles um, revered. And there's a violent aspect to it where Nixon in his lying and even in mistaking that for ambition is willing to go beyond what normal people are willing to do, to take that power, to seize it. And usually that leads to a sort of, um, that, that usually ends up in violence. And Nixon, you know, was, it definitely ends up in illegality, which is what uh, I think Thompson sensed from the start. So by the end, when Nixon's raving and ranting and um, has become, um, you know, the criminal that everybody else sees, Thompson's writing beautifully about how Nixon uh, metaphorically turns into a werewolf and lopes around um, much of Washington, D.C., you know, looking for um, whatever apartment of his enemies he can find next to uh, to attack. He, he Thompson had this instinct, and, and this comes out of, I guess, maybe his own behavior, but for, you know, what Hofstadter called that kind of paranoid style in American politics. Yeah, I mean, when, when he lived in the 1960s, and you were part of a civil rights movement or the free press, and you were up against investigative forces um, on the other side, the powerful side, from the FBI down into, you know, the um, Los Angeles Police Department's conspiracy, um, Department of Conspiracy, which they had established to infiltrate civil rights movements. That paranoid style is a um, is, is ingrained. And he, many mainstream writers, I think, through their attempted objectivity, would not necessarily dramatize it or express it. But I think that Thompson's meeting with Oscar Zeta Acosta, his friendship with Acosta, and his experiences with Acosta in Los Angeles, trying to find out if the um, journalist Ruben Salazar, one of the most famous journalists in Los Angeles, had been murdered intentionally by police, really helped Thompson articulate that idea of a paranoid style, which in its subjectivity opened up onto a more general and terrifying theme in American society as a whole. Talk a bit about Thompson's own style, his personal life during this period, and and the way in which that both shaped what he wrote and 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 really was reflective of what was going on in the culture in so many ways. You know, I think that he was he was deeply ambitious, and in the way that consciousness expansion says, right now you're limited by a certain perception, you're limited by a certain. Um, experience. But if you take this um, drug, you'll be able to unlock your full potential. You'll be able to see beyond your reality and um, gain insights and wisdom that you didn't even necessarily know um, you were capable of uh, expressing. I think Thompson saw dexedrine, which is a stimulant. It's a drug similar to what many people take, take today, um, Adderall. 
as a way to exceed his personal um, limitations in terms of um, ambition and effort. And so as a writer, he was an alcoholic since he was 14 years old. And that was a limitation to him, you know, and his natural, um, like any other human, his natural rhythms and abilities were a limitation to him. And so he saw this drug dextrodrine in a similar way to the counterculture saw LSD. It allowed him to go beyond his natural limitations. And, and he went beyond his natural limitations often in terms of writing and reporting. And so when he finished Hell's Angels, he was <clears throat> at his deadline. He was freaking out. He was worried he would never make it in time for Random House. So he drove out of San Francisco and he drove down the coast to um, Monterey got a very small motel there next to a McDonald's and for a hundred hours straight, he wrote uh, the pages that he needed to write to finish Hell's Angels and turn it into a uh, random house by March 1st. And you know, he ate, all he did was eat McDonald's hamburgers, put on the radio and he never left his room. And that's, there's, there's a romance to that, but there's also a horror to that and that he's using up what he would later call time now for time later, where there's something in um, our idea of, um, of these uh, substances that gets lost. And that is that there is zero sum equation where whenever something is taken, something is lost. And so his conception of them in the sixties kind of gave way to his conception of them in the seventies, where he wrote in the literature on winter saying, my basic idea of chemical speed is that these are reserves that once depleted, you can no longer get, but I'd rather use them right now. Um, and go as hard and fast as I can and spread them out over the course of a lifetime. One wonders what Thompson would have been like as, as a chronicler, as a reporter, as a writer, without the drugs. You know, I, I think that's a good question. I also think one, one wonders what he would have been like without the alcoholism. Mm-hmm. You know, he would have been a very different writer in that sense. And without the drugs, I don't think he would have been as sort of energetically um, fueled and engaging. There's a certain... Um, beautiful, like what he would call the high white note to his writing of that period that comes from spending 30 hours on the convention floor, um, listening to and interacting with um, politicians on both sides. That comes to, that comes from his experience of, um, you know, looking around and seeing people who have taken LSD and are beginning to see the world in a different way or articulate the world in a different way. I mean, he was chronicling a time in which the, um, you know, LSD was like a technology. It had never existed. And then after the 1940s and the post-war period, it did as a new technology. And he was part of that. And he had experienced that himself. And so I'm not sure he, who he would have been without um, the alcoholism or without the dextrodrine use or later as his career began to change without the cocaine, LSD, uh, mescaline use. He used to, you know, from what I can tell, he would do LSD once, maybe a year um, throughout the 60s and had tried it for the first time at the Hells Angels, um, Ken Kesey party in the Honda. But it, it really um, it really was integral, I think, to his identification and articulation of the time period in American history he was participating in and writing about. How did he see the role of journalism, both as a participatory journalist and an activist journalist? That's an excellent, excellent question. I, you know, I think from the start he could see how it was very easy for the most powerful people in America to manipulate objectivity. He had been an objective journalist. He'd been asked to write objective articles. He had come through the journalism freelance pipeline and struggled very, very hard to get to the point where he might be able to write a book or write um, more voiced long form articles himself. And when he finally arrived at that point and he could pretty much write what he wanted in the way that many of the new journalists um, began to be able to do like Joe Didion or like um, Tom Wolf, I think he looked back and saw that by relying on objectivity, by reporting what the um, 
people in power want you to report directly and then maybe giving somebody else's version of it too to contradict it, you're allowing those people to get their views out and establish those views in our society. And he saw, especially with the Nixon campaign and the Nixon um, treatment of the press corps, that it was very, very easy for Nixon to limit the campaign press's access to um, Nixon himself. And he, Nixon knew that those um, different journalists had to file their questions or their, um, their articles at the end of each day. So Nixon would put them in pens. He'd make them watch through closed-circuit television. He'd have Ron Siegler play, play favorites, kick people out, bring people back in. And that manipulation allowed Nixon to get out a very specific version of himself to the American electorate. And that version ended up winning against George McGovern, who actually was an honest person in real life by more than 20 points. And that outraged Hunter S. Thompson. He was there and he tried to dramatize it. You know, he had the space in Rolling Stone to dramatize the way that Nixon was manipulating the objective perspective and the deadlines um, and the desire or the dependency on access of the mainstream press to um, give a meretricious version of himself to the American public that worked. To what extent was Thompson really afraid with respect to what would happen to the country under Nixon? I mean, there's that beautiful, uh, I think it's January 1st, 1974, New York Times article by him, where uh, Thompson talks about what will Nixon do now that he's cornered? Like, we understand that Watergate's um, progressing. We understand that all the criminality we suspected of this president is um, at last coming to light through uh, careful uh, investigations. And what will Nixon, who's been the most ruthless American politician in our history, who's gone at no, um, who's never stopped at any length to assert the most power that he can, who's illegally and constantly um, looked to attack enemies that are um, after him, what will Nixon do? And Thompson talks about how Nixon could very easily create a war. You know, he could play Russia against China. He could create a nuclear crisis. He He could play on the energy crisis. And Thompson was terrified. I mean, he was terrified that by letting somebody so undemocratic into the most powerful position in our government, that that person could use the power of our government to protect themselves and perhaps destroy the country, even as they snuck or skulked away at the very last moment. You know, he, he was right. Like um, Elizabeth Drew in her, um, her, her beautiful um, book, um, um, Washington Diary, it was, she was a New Yorker writer and it chronicles the uh, Nixon um, Watergate downfall step by step. She talks about how the press was very clearly uh, suspicious or um, aware of the fact that Nixon had fabricated certain crises internationally to try to distract from what was going on um, domestically. And, and I think Thompson knew how fragile our democracy is when we put people who are so deeply unjust um, at, its, uh, at, its, uh, at its home. It, it's interesting to think about, and, and it's a difficult question because it is so speculative, but it's hard to imagine what Thompson would think about where we are today. I think you're exactly right how speculative it is, because iconoclasm, iconoclasm is a response to your, your current environment. I mean, he was amazing at looking at what journalism was like at the end of the 60s and early 70s, commenting on its failings. And so I like to think of Thompson and who he might have been today as a young writer coming up with his talents, commenting on um, the Donald Trump administration by dividing his iconoclasm into sort of two rails, one being his style, you know, his sort of manic, um, very beautifully multiform, hybridized 
approach to writing that uses personal uh, narrative, that uses found information, that uses essayistic diversions, that uses straight journalism, that uses all these different tools available to him to try to get at a larger truth that's going on. And the other is his perspective, which is that um, the American Republic is more fragile than we think, and that the people who have the most power will always do what they can to take from the people that have the least power and make sure that they have even less. And I'm not sure what his, his, that first rail would be. I'm not sure what his style would be. But I think he would be, in terms of the second rail, he would be ruthless in his indictment of the way that, whether they mean it or not, the current press is being manipulated by the Donald Trump administration in terms of access, in terms of sensationalism, in terms of clickbait and hits and all of the different, um, you know, uh, aspects that the that the current media environment depends on. And he would have been ruthless in his um, indictment of the current media environment's shortcomings, knowing that he was about the 1960 and 70s um, media environment's shortcomings. It's a wonderful thing, a wonderful fantasy to think about Hunter Thompson on Twitter today. <laughs> I mean, I think it'd be great for us. I think it'd be terrible <laughs> right. for him. <laughs> I, think, right. I think he'd, he'd lose a lot of time, man. He would be he'd be doing that instead of long form, perhaps. But we'd love it. You know, he would, he right. would start the fire that would launch a thousand ships. That's for sure. Who did he look up to? What journalists did he admire? You know, there's a great line by Doug Brinkley where he says that Mailer cut the wood and Thompson then looked to shape it. And I, I think what that means is that Norman Mailer went to those Democratic and national conventions, and he wrote about America at those conventions. Um, and I think Thompson put out a different sort of effort than Mailer did. He went to Thompson went and was on the campaign trail, or he was embedded with the Hell's Angels for um, a year, or you know he followed a specific candidate over a longer period of time. Um, and so he was able to combine, in my opinion, Thompson Mailer's kind of essayistic and narrative-based. Um, capturing of America at a certain time and place and its shortcomings. And Mailer's 1964 convention article is absolutely beautiful about Barry Goldwater. Um, it, um, it, it ends with um, Mailer walking out <clears throat> and saying violence is coming to America and the d- deep revolutions of the soul. Um, that He was right. And violence was there and violence was coming. And so was Mailer's 1968 um, article about the, um, about the Chicago convention and its violence. But, I think Thompson was able to see more into his own blind spots than Mailer was. When Mailer sits there and talks about how the different Nixonettes coming off the plane, um, each look individually, the redheads, like how attractive they are. I think Thompson, whatever his deficiencies were in terms of gender or race, knew not to go there on the page. Thompson wrote about white men who had more power than him or white men who were violent, you know, and outside the system. And in doing so, for me, his work endures a little bit more. You know? And I, I think he was deeply influenced by Tropic of Capricorn. He was deeply influenced by fiction. Um, he was deeply influenced by the beats, by uh, Jack Kerouac, and especially by um, Allen Ginsberg. You know, he was friends with Allen Ginsberg, but he also loved Allen Ginsberg's writing and respected Allen Ginsberg as an artist. And he was deeply influenced by Ken Kesey, who was an artist only a few years older and who had had such enormous success, almost boggling to the mind now, before Thompson had had his success with Hell's Angels. When you started working on this book, I want to talk about your evolution of thinking on this. I mean, I'm assuming you started thinking about this or working on this project pre-Trump and and, and yeah. to sort of be carrying this through and writing about Thompson and Nixon and, and his concern about the fragility of America and fascism as the past two years have been unfolding. 
What was that experience like for you? It was pretty mind-blowing. I mean, it's, this book started, you know, probably four years ago, uh, where I wanted to write about Thompson's um, relationship with justice and how we saw what was just and unjust in American society. And the first central focus point of it was the Ch- Thompson's experience with the Chicano movement in uh, 1970 and 1971 in Los Angeles and with Oscar Zeta Acosta, who was a brilliant political activist and thinker and um, lawyer who was um, trying to fight against the LAPD, uh, Los Angeles police, and the ways in which the Los Angeles, Angeles police were blatantly murdering and silencing any of their dissenters. All, all of these different Chicano youths were just ending up in the morgue when they'd been in pri- um, the county jail already, um, stitched up and, and you know, being called suicides when it was obvious they died in police custody, or they were just being shot in the back as they were fleeing at a, at a protest. And the LAPD was doing whatever they could to cover it up. <clears throat> and then when the LAPD killed, when the LA Sheriff's Department officer killed Ruben Salazar, the most prominent journalist and the most outspoken critic of the very brutality that he became the subject of, Thompson went down into Los Angeles, embedded himself with the um, Brown Power Movement, with um, the Brown Berets, and um, sought out in every way that he could to hold the Los Angeles Police Department accountable for their um, clear, excessive um, abuses of power. And then I, I was able to, to work on that for a while, do the research for that for a while. And right when Trump um, won, and during the, during the 19, um, sorry, during the 2016 summer, to try to get a better sense myself of what Thompson um, experienced at political conventions, what it was like to have a deadline that day after you'd been um, all, all evening down on the convention floor or talking to different delegates, you know, or uh, moving throughout the city that the convention was based in. I went to Cleveland where I worked my way, like snuck my way down on the convention floor in the way that Thompson, Thompson did. He was a good guide to that. And I went to, um, I went to the Democratic National Convention, and then I went to <clears throat> inauguration night um, in Washington, D.C. So I was sitting at the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C. at 9 p.m. when all of the returns began to come in from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And the needle in the New York Times went from 80% Hillary Clinton winning to 20%. And it was suddenly clear as all of these Trump supporters are, are cheering around me that um, he was going to be the next president of the United States. One of the first areas I, I turned my, my mind to, to avoid the trauma of what I was <laughs> feeling at that moment, was that uh, now I have a new lens to place over the project I've, I've wanted to write about Hunter Thompson. And really, I took a lot of the emotion of that experience of um, what I thought was happening to America in our present and really applied it to the past and then the narrative that I made. So Trump's never mentioned the book once, but it's entirely about him. And I would hope it would be a book for anybody who's upset about our state of America today and doesn't have to know who Thompson was or could be a huge Thompson fan, but um, can understand that those emotions were, were just as rampant 50 years ago and right now. Perhaps it would be even worse. Tim Denevy, his book is Free Kingdom, Hunter S. Thompson's manic 10-year crusade against American fascism. Tim, I thank you so much for spending time with us. I can't thank you enough. This has been fantastic. Thank you.